Thank you. Good morning. I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The early church initially met daily in Acts chapter 2 from house to house. Later in Acts chapter 20, it seems that they settled into a pattern of meeting on the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week, Sunday, was not a day of rest in that culture, that Jewish culture. Saturday, the Sabbath, was the day of rest. They met on the first day of the week because it was the day of Christ's resurrection. So Sunday was a work day equivalent to our Monday. So they didn't have church at 10.15 on Sunday morning. It was a work day. So they worked all day, and then they came together in the evening for a meal. Jude, verse 12, calls that the love feast. And then in that context of having a meal together called the love feast, they had the breaking of bread, prayer, they were taught God's word, and they fellowshiped together, the things they were committed to, according to Acts chapter 2. And by the way, they were not clock watchers because the meeting in Acts chapter 20 went till daybreak. And then they went back to work as tent makers or sandal salesmen or slaves or whatever. Now that was the setup in the church at Corinth. They had a love feast together and they had these components that they were committed to. But Paul is not at all pleased with what's going on. And he says in verse 17, when you gather together, you do more harm than good. You gather together for a love feast, and you're hating each other. And you're selfishly eating your own food, and you're ignoring the poor, and some were actually getting drunk. And so Paul says in verse 20, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. You're eating your own supper. You're not eating the Lord's Supper. You have so perverted what's going on here that I can't call it the Lord's Supper anymore. And so in verses 23 to 34, Paul challenges the Corinthians to take another look at the Lord's Supper. And this passage really stands out as a gem against this backdrop, this dark backdrop of the problems in the church at Corinth. And it gives us a proper perspective of the Lord's Supper. Which, by the way, goes by a variety of titles. In Acts 2, 42, it's called the breaking of bread. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, 20, it's called the Lord's Supper. In verse 24 of our passage, some people call it a remembrance service. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You've heard it called the Eucharist. That's the Greek word used in verse 24 of our passage for giving thanks. And earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, people call it communion because it it says there that when we take the bread, we are sharing, communing, having fellowship with the body of Christ. And each of those names really depicts a certain aspect of this meal. Now this morning I want to look at our perspective of the Lord's Supper, and I've given you an outline for that perspective. We need to look upward, backward, forward, inward, and outward. And we'll look at it that way. First of all, we're to look upward. Verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered 
to you. Now, Paul had already taught them this. He says, I already delivered, past tense, this information to you. That's why they were practicing the Lord's Supper. But he says, when I delivered it to you, it was not my opinion or my idea or it wasn't just the tradition of man. He says, I received it from the Lord. So the first place we look is upward to realize this came as a directive from God. Now, it may interest you to know that your Bible is not laid out in chronological order according to the order in which it was written. And 1 Corinthians was actually written before any of the four Gospels were written. So that, that makes it very interesting here. Paul didn't just turn back to one of the Gospels and look, look this up and write this down. And Paul was not an eyewitness to this because he wasn't there when this happened. So he says, I got it from the Lord. This is the first statement in print relative to the Lord's Supper, and Paul wants to make it clear where it's coming from. It's coming from the Lord directly. So first of all, in our perspective, we look upward. Secondly, in our perspective, we look backward. In view of the fact that they had perverted this so badly, Paul wants them to look back and understand the purpose for the Lord's Supper. So notice what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, it takes us back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. Interesting, we talk about a dark backdrop. The very night when Jesus was going to be arrested, he established this remembrance meal. He was gathered, you remember, with his disciples in the upper room to have the Passover meal. And in Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, did Jesus earnestly desire to eat it so that he could remember the exodus from Egypt? No. He wanted to take them from remembering a lamb that suffered in Egypt to remembering the lamb who would suffer on the cross for our sins. He earnestly desired to eat it because he wanted to establish this new feast. Now, let me just give you some background. When they sat down for the Passover, they sat down at the table, and the Passover really was marked by four cups of wine. Now, let me just give you the outline for the Seder meal, as it's called, the Passover meal that they celebrated. First of all, the head of the household would take the first cup and he would drink it, and he would pass it around the table. And that was followed by a lecture about the Passover. He would describe how God had delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. And there was a lot of symbolism on the table. He would, he would deal with symbolic items that were on the table and explain those items because that gave them a visual effect that would describe the exodus from Egypt. After that, they would sing the first part of the Hillel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. So they probably sang 113 and 114, maybe just three verses each. I thought that was pretty funny. 
I just thought of that. (laughs) Then he would take the second cup. He would drink from that cup and pass it around. Then he would take the bread, which was unleavened bread, and he would bless it and he would break it and the meal would begin. And then when the meal was done, the host would say a prayer. Then he would take the third cup, drink it, pass it around. And then they sang the rest of the Hillel. And that's why we read in Mark 14, 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then they, he took the fourth cup and shared it. Somewhere, Matthew and Mark tell us it was as they were eating, he took the bread and he instituted this Lord's Supper. And then he took the cup, probably this third cup, because Luke tells us it was after supper that he took the cup. And in verse 25 of this passage, it tells us that same thing. It was after supper, so it would be this third cup that he took and instituted the Lord's Supper. So during the meal, he took the unleavened bread. It was unleavened bread because they were about to travel. (laughs) And it travels better, but it also doesn't rise. So it's basically, you can buy it today, it's matzah crackers. Uh, And and they don't rise, they're just little crackers. And that's what he did. He took this bread, these matzah crackers, and verse 24 says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this phrase, this is my body. Let me just tell you why I don't take this literally. It's obvious to me that Jesus didn't intend for the disciples to take this literally. He was holding the bread in his hand, and he handed it to them and said, this is my body. Now, if that bread became his body, then you had two bodies, If you're going to take the position that the bread becomes his body today, then you have to take the position that it became his body when he said it. This is my body. Seems obvious to me Jesus did not intend for that to be taken literally. Secondly, in Greek, the word is, which is the verb to be, is used in other passages to mean this idea of represents or symbolizes. For example, in Matthew 13, 38, Jesus says, the field is the world. Now, he doesn't have to say the field symbolizes the world. That's what he means, but he uses this verb is. In Revelation 17, 9 and 10, it says the seven heads are, same verb, the seven heads are seven mountains and they are seven kings. In other words, they represent that. Jesus often used this same verb talking about himself in a symbolic sense. He said, I am, which is the same verb. I am the door. I am the light. I am the bread. I am the way. He means symbolically, I am that. Thirdly, Jesus said this in the context of the Passover meal, which is a very symbolic meal. I told you that everything on the table represented something. On that table, you would find bitter herbs. 
the host would take the bitter herbs and describe how that represented the bitterness of slavery. There was a lamb's bone on the table that represented the sacrifice of that lamb. There was an egg on the table that represented the sacrifice, again, of that lamb. There was greenery on the table that represented new life. There was salt water on the table. He would take that and say, this represents the tears of slavery. There was a fruit paste on the table that represented the mortar that they used to build in Egypt. And there was an extra chair at the table and an extra glass of wine sitting at the table empty. The chair was empty. The wine was full. In anticipation that Elijah would come in keeping with Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. In fact, at some point in the meal, the, the father would send his son to the door to open the door to see if Elijah might be out there. And so there's all this symbolism taking place in this meal, and in the context of all of that symbolism, Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body. They would understand that in a symbolic way. And then let me give you one last reason, and that is if you take verse 24 literally, then you have to take verse 25 literally. Because Jesus said, this is my body, speaking of the bread. Notice verse 25. When he gets to verse 25, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So if you're taking him literally, you have to say, well, the bread is literally the body of Christ and the cup is literally the new covenant. No, it represents the new covenant. Now, let me add this also. In the King James Version, and even the New King James Version, in verse 24, Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. That word broken is not in the best manuscripts, and it shouldn't be included here. You say, well, why is that important? It's important because Jesus' body was not broken. In fact, the Bible prophesies, David prophesied in Psalm 34, 20, not one of his bones would be broken. And you remember when the, they came around to break the legs of the three on the cross, they broke the criminal on the right and the criminal on the le left, and Jesus was already dead, and so they didn't break his legs. And it says there, that fulfilled the prophecy that not one bone of his would be broken. It reminds me of a friend of mine in Bible college he was telling me this story about how he, he went to a church where they had an open communion where they just shared, kind of like ours is on Sunday morning. And He was up in Chicago, and he got up to share, and he was a young believer, and he was kind of, you know, talking about the suffering of Christ and how bad it was and how much he bled, and he kind of got carried away, and he kind of said, you know, they, they punched him, and they beat him, and they whipped him, and they probably broke all kinds of bones in his body. And he was all enthusiastic about it and the suffering of Christ, and he sat down. He said, a fellow stood up and said, let's sing hymn number 146, No Bone of His Was Broken. <laughs> I'm sure he remembered that point. That may be, not be the best way to let him know. But the truth is, Scripture is careful that no bone of his was 
was broken. Now, I want you to look at verse 24 again, because this statement, do this in remembrance of me, is a command. That's why Paul is careful to say that he got this from the Lord. Communion is not an optional thing. Communion is not an elective course. It's something Jesus commanded us to do. So if I am not taking communion, it's sin because it's a command from the Lord. Now, I can get up here and bow breach you, browbeat you. You try this sometime. I can tell you that you need to be here at 8.30 on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning for communion, but we have basically decided as leadership that it's our responsibility, if everybody won't come to communion, that we need to bring communion to you because it's too important a thing. So we have decided on a, some kind of regular basis to bring it into this service so that it's available because it is a command from the Lord and we need to make it available. To you. In fact, I'm just going to tell you that because on May 4th, I'll come back and talk on this subject again, and we're going to share communion together in this service because it's very important, obviously, to the Lord because he commanded us to do it. Now, what's the purpose of communion? Well, he says, remember. Remember what? Remember me. More particularly, because it's the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood, we are remembering not just Jesus in general, but particularly his death for us. In fact, verse 26 spells that out because it says we proclaim his death. And so we go back and we remember Jesus and his death. But I want you to notice two key words in verse 24. And those are the key words, the words for you. You see, when we go back and remember Jesus' death, our conclusion isn't, that was an atrocity. That was unfair. That was wrong. Well, it was unfair. Because Jesus died for me. You see, when I go back and remember his his death, I remember that it was a sacrifice on my behalf. And then notice verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, a covenant is a contract. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. If you've got a cell phone, you have entered into a covenant with AT&T or T-Mobile or Sprint or whoever else you're dealing with. You see, they, they make you sign that contract. And then oftentimes you read the small print and you find out you're committed for two years. And if you ever go over your minutes, you're going to pay like 45 cents a minute after that. They've got you in that. That's a covenant arrangement that you have agreed to. You are in a covenant relationship with your cell phone provider. We were under the old covenant, a covenant ratified by animal's blood. Now in our relationship with God, we are in a new covenant, and that covenant is ratified by Jesus' blood. 
And you know what's exciting to me? When you read the fine print, you know what you find out? All of your sins are forgiven fully and completely and forever. And there are no more sacrifices. There is one sacrifice for sin forever. And Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. And we are removed from our previous contract under the old covenant. We are no longer under law as a system. We are placed under the new covenant of grace. And the Spirit of God has converted you. He has caused you to be born again, and he has written his law on your heart and placed his spirit inside of you so that you are now, for the first time in your life, able to actually obey God. And you see, when I come to communion, I take the bread and the cup, and I say, the reason I now have this relationship with God is because Jesus died for me. That's interesting. Earlier in the book of Corinthians, in chapter 5 and verse 7, we're told that Christ is our Passover. And what I find exciting, when you go back to that first Passover, they were told to take an unblemished lamb, and they were told an interesting detail. They were told to take that unblemished lamb and remove it from the flock and take it into their house for three days. Now, if you've got kids, what happens when you would bring a lamb? Well, you don't do it very often. What would happen if you brought a lamb into your house? Well, your kids would go, oh, and pretty soon that lamb would become a pet, and they would probably name it Fluffy. So you bring it into the house for three days, and you hang out with the lamb, and then after those three days, Dad takes the lamb and sacrifices the lamb and puts the blood on the doors, on the sides and on the top, kind of picturing a cross. And there's an emotional attachment to this lamb. And the conclusion is, that lamb died for us. That lamb died in our place because God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That lamb got what I deserve. That was a conclusion. Now, it always fascinates me that God chose a lamb because there's really no weaker animal than a sheep. I always say, you know, you don't, you don't find uh, sheep representing any football teams. People make fun of the St. Louis Rams, calling them the St. Louis Lambs. That's a joke. So, you know, the sheep, a sheep is really, the weakest animal there is is a sheep. And the weakest sheep is a lamb. And the weakest thing you can do is die. So God looked, chose what looked like the very weakest thing to accomplish the greatest result. You know, because so many people traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, they weren't able to bring their lamb with them, and so they would purchase their lamb in Jerusalem. And those lambs were raised in the small communities around Jerusalem. One of those places where the lambs were raised was a place called Migdal Eder, which means the shepherd's field. It's located in the little town of Bethlehem. 
where the shepherds kept watch over their flocks by night. You see, they were raising flocks for sacrifice. And that's why when Jesus was born, the angel came to those shepherds raising lambs to die in the place of man and said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And every time we take communion, we look back and we remember that Lamb of God who was sacrificed in our place. And we remember the relationship we now have with God as a result of that. And in essence, we renew our commitment, our covenant relationship. It's like saying our vows over again to the Lord every time. Lord, I am committed to you. Thank you for what you've done for me. So we look up. It came from God. We look back and see the purpose to remember. Thirdly, we look forward. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we're not told how often to have the Lord's Supper. We see the pattern in the New Testament church. But I guess the question is, how often do you want to proclaim the death of Christ? How often do you want to remember his sacrifice for you? How often do you want to say thank you? How often do you want to fellowship with him in his death? I think that's why the early church met day to day because they wanted to do that as often as they could. But I want you to notice, it's, it's a remembrance, but it's more than a remembrance. He says it's a proclamation. When we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. That word proclaim is used earlier in this book in chapter 9 and verse 14 where it talks about proclaiming the gospel. And so, Communion, the breaking of bread, is a visual proclamation of the gospel, which I find very interesting because there are churches that have closed communion, which means we won't allow you in to participate unless you meet certain qualifications that we set up. There is never any indication in Scripture that communion should be closed to anyone. In fact, I find it interesting in this passage, it indicates to me that if an unbeliever wants to come to communion, they're going to see a visual proclamation of the gospel. When I was saved at age 20, I had an unbelieving girlfriend who was totally unchurched. And after I got saved, I brought her to church. I brought her to a communion service. It was amazing, after it was over, how many questions she had. What was the deal with the bread? and And I got to explain the gospel to her in the context of a visual aid, the bread and the cup. And so when we take communion, we proclaim. It's a proclamation of the gospel. And how long should we continue to do it? He says, until he comes. Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Which tells me it's not just a remembrance and it's not just a proclamation This service is actually an anticipation, which tells me that when we have communion, it shouldn't look like a funeral service. 
We're not remembering that Jesus is dead and in a grave somewhere. He rose again, and he promises that he's coming back, and we're only doing it in anticipation that, hey, he might come back today. So that makes it a pretty exciting thing to do. And the early church got a hold of that because in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, they were breaking bread with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. And so it's to be a joyous time of praise and anticipation, forward-looking, that Jesus is coming back. We're just having this sort of temporary meal until we get to sit down and feast with him in the kingdom in that future day. And then fourthly, we're to look inwardly. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, what's it mean to eat in an, excuse me, eat unworthily? Well, I think it means to come to communion and just kind of take it as a common thing. Just kind of take it as, oh, I got some, they're going to give me a bread. I want the big piece. Is this all the, is this all the juice we get? You know, just viewing it as common. Or coming to communion while you're despising your brother or sister in Christ. Or coming to communion while you're prejudiced, and you have that prejudice in your heart, would be unworthy. You see, that's what the... Corinthians were doing. They were selfishly taking the meal, and it was all about them rather than about others. And he says, if you participate in communion in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's a pretty stern statement. You say, well, Dan, what does it mean to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? Well, I'm not totally sure but I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're going to lose your salvation. Because down in verse 30, he gives us the consequence of doing this, and the worst consequence is that you sleep. The worst consequence is that you get to go to heaven early because of your disobedience. Now let me try to illustrate this. If you took an American flag and trampled on that American flag. Most people would be pretty irate about that. Why? Because that flag is a symbol of our nation. And by dishonoring that flag, you are dishonoring our nation. If you come to communion and you dishonor communion, just take it as another common thing, then you are dishonoring the person of Christ that the bread and the cup represent. So it's important that we come to this service in the right attitude. And so in verse 28, he says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, I don't examine myself to see if I'm worthy because I can examine myself from now till eternity and I will never be worthy. I examine myself and then I deal with what I find. 
I, exa- I shine the light inside and I say, you know what? Are there things that I've been doing in my life this week that are dishonoring to the Lord? I need to confess those things and give them to the Lord. And I want you to notice, he doesn't say examine yourself and decide whether you should eat. He says, examine yourself, get those things straightened out, and eat. You see, if you examine yourself and you find something in there that makes you unworthy, you're not going to go away and get it fixed because the only place to get it fixed is where? At the cross. So you come and you confess that to the Lord. You get right before the Lord. And then he says, I want you to eat. Now, why do I need to examine myself? Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If you don't judge the body rightly, you are eating and drinking judgment to yourself. That's another strong statement. What's it mean to judge the body rightly? Well, the body represents Christ's body, but we're also told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17 that it represents our one body as a church. So if you come together and you're divided as a church or you're, you're hating your brother or, or you've got a problem with your brother, then you need to leave your offering at the altar, as Jesus said, and go be reconciled with your brother and then come back and worship God because you're not viewing the body properly. And so I need to judge the body properly, both the body of Christ, the church, and the body of Christ that he sacrificed for me. And when I don't, I'm liable for judgment. You say, well, why is God going to judge me? Look at verse 30. He says, for this reason, many among you, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now, God's pretty serious about it. I mean, they had been burying Corinthians, And he says, many of them. And he says, the reason is because you're having the Lord's Supper and you've made it this drunken fiasco. And God's serious about dealing with that. You say, well, Dan, this is kind of scary to me. I mean, God says, I command you to do it. And if you do it wrong, I'm going to zap you. That's a little nerve-wracking. Well, God is pretty serious about this. You know, if you go back and read about the Passover, there's an interesting thing it says about the Passover meal. And that is it says that you're to have no leftovers. Now, when I go to Outback, you know, I figure I'm going to get a good meal and I'm going to bring home one of those little uh, leftover containers. And at lunch the next day, I'm going to have a little meal. Well, he says, you you cook this lamb and you eat it all there and you burn up the remains because there's no leftovers. Why not? Because there was a spiritual significance to that meal. And he didn't want you to have the leftovers the next day as a common meal. He didn't want you to get into practice where you ate this meal as just a common meal because there was spiritual significance to it. When Jesus came to Jerusalem just days before he ate that last Passover meal, What did the temple look like? They were selling lambs at an inflated price. They were changing money for those who traveled a long way and taking their cut out of that. They were taking advantage of the travelers who came to worship God at the temple, and they had forgotten the spiritual significance of Passover. 
Passover for them became simply a fleshly, physical feast. And what did Jesus do? He made a whip, and he cleared them out of the temple. We see the Corinthians have done that same thing with the Lord's Supper. They have made it a fleshly, physical meal. The wealthy were coming and eating their food before the poor got there, and the reason the poor were late is because they had to work longer before they got off work, because they were poor. And so the the rich were eating their food and keeping it away from the poor, and the poor were going home hungry, and people were getting drunk, and they had turned this, what was meant to be a spiritual meal, into a very common thing. And so that's why they needed such strong words on this occasion. But I want you, as you look at this passage, to realize that this is not intended just to be a negative thing. It's intended to be a positive thing. Because what it says to me each week is, don't play games with God. Be real with God. You see, if you do it on a regular basis, then every time you come to communion, you take inventory of your life. And it's a reason to say, this is serious to God, and I need to get serious with God. I can't go through this communion meal and play games with God. You may feel comfortable to come here and sit and listen to me and play games with God. But God says, if you don't judge yourself, he's going to judge you. And that's in verse 31. Look at what he says. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. There's a simple solution to not being judged, and that is judge yourself. I hear people all the time say, judge not, judge not. Okay, fine. Judge yourself. That's what he's saying. You examine yourself and be honest with yourself before God, and he won't have to intervene. You say, well, why does he intervene? Look at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You know why the Lord judges you? Because he loves you. He's not talking about judgment, judgment. He's talking here about Discipline. Who disciplines somebody? Their parents do. And why do parents discipline? Because they love. Hebrews chapter 12 says, if you're without discipline, then you're not God's child. So if he's disciplining you, it's because he loves you and doesn't want you to be an illegitimate child, doesn't want you to simply be part of the world because the world is condemned. So we're to look inward as we come to that meal, examining ourselves and being honest before the Lord. And then finally, we're to look outward in verses 33 and 34. And this is really sort of a summation. He says in verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This love feast ought to be a loving feast. So when you come together, think about other people. It's a very practical application to this. And then he says in verse 34, if, any, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. You know, you come to this meeting. If you're really hungry, uh, you know, stop at the drive-thru on the way to the meal. 
you eat ahead of time, and then when you get there, it'll be easier for you to share with other people because your belly will be full. It's a very practical application here. If you're coming to this meal and you're starving and you're going to eat it all yourself, don't, don't do that. Eat at home. Eat ahead of time. Because the priority in your life ought to be other people. So there's the perspective of the Lord's Supper. Look upward. It's a command of the Lord. Look backward. We remember that Jesus died for us. And if he had not, we would not have a relationship with God. Look forward in anticipation that Jesus will return. Look inward and examine yourself. And look outward to care for others. Very simple. Very simple elements, bread and cup. Very simple purpose. Very simple application. Before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask for Jack and Robin Mills to come forward. They're going to join this morning. And... uh, guys would walk to the center right here under this uh, spotlight so everybody can see you. Robin told me she was a little nervous to come up here, so I won't keep her very long. I just want to give her whole life story. (laughs) Take about 25 minutes. We won't do that. I just want you to see, see the mills this morning. And Bill, if you wouldn't mind walking them out, I'll give you a chance after we close in prayer. Uh, to meet them. Go ahead and start walking them out. And uh, um, they're joining our fellowship to get today. If, if you've noticed, there are already greeters in the lobby. I love that when people jump into service before they even join. And that's, I think, a reflection of their heart attitude that they want to serve the Lord. So if you haven't met them, be sure and meet them and greet them and encourage them this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage that reminds us of this one ritual, one religious thing you've asked us to do, one sensory thing, one symbolic thing that is the bread and the cup that you've asked us to do in a service on a continuing basis, to do it in remembrance of you. And Lord, I just pray that we would do that because we are forgetful people and we need that picture We need that reminder. We need to go back to the cross on a regular basis and remember what it cost for us to have the relationship we enjoy with you. And Lord, I pray that we would do that in a way that honors and pleases you and exalts you as well. In Jesus' name.